back with our fifth part of our book club series on the Ports of Being Foolish by Brandon Manning. Today, I am here with my friends, Laura and Jason. Hi, friends. How are you doing? Doing good. I can't believe we're in week Morning. five. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So this uh, ch- chapter of The Importance of Being Foolish is pages 90, 97 through 117, I believe. And it's called A Heart of Forgiveness. And I need both of you to help me sift through this for a minute. I read this as not about forgiveness, but about a what having a heart of forgiveness can do for you. Laura, is that how you experienced it? Or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I found this chapter really appropriate coming out of Holy Week. And there's a lot of um, looking at Jesus and how he views people. Um, And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think I agree that it's not just about how do you have a heart of forgiveness, but how do you see others through that lens, I guess. Yes, and yourself through that lens. How do do you gain a heart of forgiveness rather than like the steps to forgiveness? Like it's, that's a great way of putting it, Kyle. Yeah, the thing that jumped out at me on these first uh, pages is, uh, when he Brennan describes uh, an AA meeting, and he says, if one could use only one word to describe the feeling of an AA meeting, it would be love, because love is the only word I know that encompasses friendship, understanding, sympathy, empathy, kindness, honesty, pride, and humility. Uh, the yes. kind of love I mean is the kind Jesus had in mind when he said love one another. And I think, like, to think about forgiveness and to think about um, having a heart of forgiveness almost opens your heart up to all of those different kinds of love. It seems to me like Brennan is describing how having a heart of forgiving yourself and showing yourself compassion is how to open and unlock all of those other things inside of you. Jason, do you, do you feel that like that? or do you think Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, for whatever reason, I've been reminded the last week or so, um, and maybe it was a Holy Week thing, about 1 Corinthians 13, the, the, the famous love chapter, right? And um, just kind of needing to be reminded, oh, yeah, this is, this is what we mean by love. It, it keeps no record of wrongs, <laughs> you know. I just wish that church can be like that AA meeting that he described. That was one of the things that I thought of, too, um, when he was talking about that. One of the things I wrote in the side notes is, why is church not like this? Um, one of the statements in there that goes just a little bit further down it. Um, it says, it is the only place they know where status means nothing. Nobody feels, no, nobody fools anybody else. And I wish that church was a place that that could happen, where we could walk in and not feel like we have to cover up our brokenness. You know, I look at AA meetings that we hold in our building, and um, even this chapter talks about the celebrations that they have for the anniversaries. And I just want to do a little shout out to Pastor Tom, who's <laughs> yes. at 20 years sober. Um, that's yeah. amazing. And, and just how we even as a staff celebrated that with him this week, um, even in social distancing situations. But um, I just, I look at, you know, I think when you're looking at the, the command that Jesus gives to love God and love others as you love yourself, and it really starts with how do I learn to love myself in a way that I can love others the same? And I think, we are our own worst critics, right? And yes. and and how do we how do we figure out how to do that in a really 
healthy way because there's a lot of things that I don't love about myself, but that limits me from loving others the same way. Yeah, I think it's it ties kind of into the pages following that that talks about the like the culture in Christian life of like hyper criticism and not even in Christian life but in culture of like this almost enjoyment of petty uh, criticism and like unsatisfaction with whatever that may be. Right. He gives the, like just the talks about how people are so excited at restaurants to like criticize things uh, yes. like the service, whatever. But if they can't criticize that, they find something to yeah. talk about that's negative and yes. like kind of disappointing. And I think the thing about the, his description of the AA meetings and in my experience with AA and in my experience with people in recovery and just like dealing with my own recovering from things, it's like we need to be people and to surround ourselves with people who are not interested in the pettiness of like minute criticism. And we need to focus both internally and externally on like how to interact with people in a way that is um, promoting accountability, love and care in a way that's directed towards health and directed towards like progress and directed towards like fullness instead of this, pettiness that's directed towards like gossip and directed towards like conversation and directed towards like just kind of getting one over on somebody. You know what I mean? Because I think th those are the spaces in which I think I've ex even experienced Pastor Tom talk about AA of like, that is where the value lies in people who are going to hold you accountable and not going to let you get away with things that aren't making you healthy, but not because they can like win Right, the battle against you, not because they can like criticize you and then gossip about it later, but because they're generally interested in your personal health moving forward. And that's something I struggle with. And I think the whole church struggles with in regards to how to hold people accountable, but not do it for the sake of gossip and for the sake of like dramatic theater. Or jealousy. Like, I feel like there's sometimes that we see people who are accomplishing these things and moving forward in their recovery and we want to belittle them because we aren't at the same level as them and being able to attain that. I think, you know, it, it talks about here, we hate other people not because we love ourselves too much, but because we are not able to love ourselves enough. Yes. And it, it just always comes back to, it starts with me. Like it starts with me dealing with me. Yeah, I would, this definitely ties into the security piece for me uh, in a big way. Um, I've got two kind of dynamics going on. One is I grew up something about growing up in a very conservative reform tradition um, with a high emphasis on total depravity and what I would even call worm theology um, has really impacted my ability to love myself. Uh, the other being just my own high degree of insecurity and wrestling with um, self esteem you know I'm like so like i i've got a double whammy against me i'm inherently wired to not love myself very well and something was ingrained in me as a child that yeah you should not be loving yourself you are in fact a sinner not worthy of love by god you should feel you know it was the whole idea behind all that was to like try to further like make grace amazing but it like went so far down this path of you're a horrible person 
that like that still is the wound rather than just God God saw something in you that was worth loving too. <laughs> you know, like like yeah. that's part of the that part of the gospel was not I didn't get that for some strange reason. Yeah, he even talked about that uh, tour he took through the village uh, on the Hudson River, and the tour guide's only instruction was, please be gentle with the lambs. They won't come to you if you frighten them. And, like, yeah. this metaphor or this, like, illustration of Jesus as someone who isn't going to try to frighten us, right? And I think a lot of times we think that the fright comes from being held accountable or the fright comes from Jesus wanting more for us than what we have or what we're doing or what we're believing. But in reality, that fright is coming from somewhere else, right? That fright is coming from this petty insecurity that we have or this petty criticism of ourselves because who would be frightened for someone wanting more for them or someone wanting what's best for them or someone wanting a full and incredible life that they haven't even experienced yet for them. And it, it, uh, when he talks about this, that story outside of the theater, when he was thinking so hard about the smart thing he could say to the woman who asked him in his uh, priest collar for help, um, yeah. like, wait a minute. And she was immediately just like, oh, I'm not interested in that. Like, she wasn't being petty. She wasn't going to go talk to somebody else about him. She was just like, oh, this is not how Jesus would be. I'm uninterested in this, so get it out of there. And finding ways in which we reject all the things that aren't directly of Jesus, which is probably that fright that he talks about, and just only be interested in, like, the things that are going to make us better and make us healthy, like that woman was. She was only interested in getting helpful insight and being helped, being taken care of. So what does it look like to run away from all the things that aren't that and run straight towards all the things that are? I remember sitting at the lunch table at Evergreen back, back in the days of yore when we were actually together in person in the office, <laughs> uh, sitting around the lunch table um, a couple months ago, the conversation was our experience of middle school and high school. We were sharing stories of times we'd been made fun of or people had been mean to us back, back then. And, um, I've shared even from stage at how I experienced that quite a bit. And I'm still remembering vividly those wounds and how I experienced those people. Then there's still something in me that's like, ah, do I really want to friend request this? Do I really want to like accept this? Do I really want to reach out to this person? Do I believe that they could be changed? And yet like I, deeply in my soul, I like, I'm like, gosh, I would want that kind of, grace and acceptance from them <laughs> you know i want them to believe that 20 years later i'm a different person too and that i have regrets about things that i said back then i think he's i think he's right on to say the heart of forgiveness seems to grow at the when the base is actually deeply receiving the unending tender love of God to me, you know, and that, that then really actually believing and coming to know that I'm loved deeply by God as I am, not as, not as I'm supposed to be. Right. Um, then I can love myself that way, you know, and then that leads to that begins the heart of forgiveness, uh, that compassion that 
becomes the fount of the weeping and the empathy and some of the other words you were mentioning at the beginning of this conversation about what love actually is. You just like, and I think that ties so well into what it looks like to look at other people in the way that you look at yourself, right? On the top of page 110, it says a Christian who doesn't merely see, but looks at another communicates to that person that he is being recognized as a human being in an impersonal world of objects as someone and not something. If this simple psychological reality, difficult and demanding as it is, were actualized in the human relationships, perhaps 98% of the obstacles to living like Jesus would be eliminated. But this is the very foundation of justice, the ability to recognize the other as a human being with the sign of the lamb glowing on his brow. It's like, yo, how hard it is, how hard would it be to recognize the humanity of other people and the worth of other people if we constantly just berate ourselves and criticize ourselves and talk about ourselves like we're trash. And it becomes so obvious to see these people who desire to like oppress, the desire to keep people down, the desire to like put their foot on like the heads and the throats of other people to keep them on the ground when you realize how hard it is for them to acknowledge their love of themselves. And it's like, it's just so transparent. That's a weird thing for me. It's like, cause I'm trying to figure out as I read this, what is, what like needs to happen first, right? Do I need to try to take the steps towards like a new and a transcendent like level of compassion that I've never been able to feel for other people before through my presence and through my like intentionality in my life? Or do like, first do I have to, like try to figure out how I interact with the way Jesus thinks about me first, or do I do those simultaneously? I think that's the hardest thing that I've like been thinking about reading this is like, what, what do I do first? And is it possible to do one of those things while still being really bad at the other? That's so true. And I wonder what it looks like to do it simultaneously, because I think one can scratch the surface of the other and impact how you like, I think they can build on each other and yes, but it is hard to know where to start. Good question, Kyle. <laughs> at the beginning of our lives, I feel like it has to begin at some place with receiving from Jesus, but also knowing that like sometimes the way that we receive from Jesus is through other people and receiving from other people. Part of what's happening in this um, shelter-in-place time that we're in is um a pruning or an exposing of our addictions and our idols in our areas of need and i think that's just an area of need that's being exposed is that i where am i finding my value where am i finding that i don't love myself very well because i believe that my worth depends on things outside of me yeah and I think like you, we talking about this has kind of talked me into something, which I think I'm thinking about right now is that like the, almost the essence of the heart of forgiveness is having your default state be to give humanity and dignity to people, you know, what I mean? others, like, yes. that, not having to earn it because you, there's so many spaces that we go into where we are more than willing to give humanity and dignity to people if they earn it. You know what I mean? And like that happens in service a lot, right? Like you have a great waiter, like you're more than willing to interact in a human way with a a waiter or waitress if they, if they've earned that, but until they do, or if they don't, 
then we fail to humanize them, right? One of like the hallmarks of the racism I've experienced as a 26 year old person in my life has been this microaggression of white people talking about non-white people as, oh, he's actually a really great guy. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) the amount of times I've heard white people say that about non-white people is astounding, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to feel good about myself for providing humanity and dignity to this person because they earned it, because they proved to me that they weren't what I assumed them to be. When in reality, that was whoever was saying that to me was the person that was doing the opposite of what what Jesus does, as Mm. in giving, establishing humanity with all of those things. And I think that's the root of all of these problems we have with everything is this this understanding that, oh, I, I'm more than willing to give this person the dignity and humanity that Jesus does if they prove to me that they're worth it or they've earned it. And yeah. that's frustrating to me. In, and I'm sure I do that in a lot of ways, like in my life right now with people all over. So walk, moving forward to understand that, hey, I'll love myself a whole lot better if, I, if my default in my own heart about me is humanity and dignity and other people everywhere is humanity and dignity. And I think that's how we, and especially in this time of like valuing previously undervalued professions and people and serve like servants of the human race in regards to like grocery store workers, healthcare workers, like maybe that will, this will be what changes that. I think, yeah, his illustration was going to the grocery store. Um, I found, I found that to be a very simple challenge. I've, I'm realizing that my default is to just be so focused on the task ahead of getting through the grocery store as quick as I can, which my wife gets annoyed by. Um, And just getting out of there rather than like actually taking the split second. Like I go for the self checkout line, right? Because it's faster and I just don't want to have to interact with people. (laughs) And that's like... I'm just in a selfish space when I'm in the grocery store. And it's a very simple invitation to like stop and give dignity to the people who are there serving me, you know, especially now in this space of like their essential workers busting their butt, filling, you know, filling empty shelves after a bunch of panicked people have been through there. They need, they have just as much worth and dignity as I do. It's a weird thing to even have to say. Like, I shouldn't even have to say that. I should just live from that place that, like, everybody else ought to be treated with the same dignity that I think I deserve. I'm also impressed with how much Jesus gives time to anyone who seeks to have time with him. Yeah. Like, he just... He just stops and, and does it. Like he does know when he needs to move away and go spend time with God, but yeah. he he takes the time to be with people. You know, I think of again, friend of Manning when he's dealing with that woman on the street, like he knew he wanted to spend time with her, but it wasn't his first priority. Um, he wanted to take care of himself first and then he was gonna go back to her and recognizing that we need to get ourselves out of the way. Um and just continue to look at people around us and what, what is it that they need? You know, yesterday I got a phone call 
from a lady that I did not want to answer the phone because I knew it was going to be a 20 minute conversation. And John looked at me, he's like, pick up the phone. <laughs> and I did. And she just needed someone to talk. She's a she's an old lady who's by herself in her house stranded right now. And she just needed someone to care for her and talk to her. And I just let her talk. And at the end of that, I realized the 20 minutes I spent with her was so valuable because she had interaction and felt cared for. I had to get myself out of the way in that situation to know that I need to be able to, to see people that way too and, and, and act on that myself. He, and he ends with a story about um, an alcoholic who also struggled with something way more stigmatized than alcohol coming into this meeting and him and the other elders discussing uh, would they allow, would they uh, welcome him in. And yeah. through their discussions, Brennan like, realizes this thing that seems so simple but often gets so misconstrued. And he just says, what would the master do? Which is getting very WWJD, which <laughs> is tough, but I can get behind it in this context of like, where, where are spaces where we can think like Jesus would think? Like, what posture would he take into the world? Would he be hypercritical of every small mistake that someone makes in the service context? Would he be mad at himself for making some weird small mistake in conversation or in relationship? Would he be walking around just searching, just dying for gossip and dying for some like theater to talk about with his friends that like is just not productive? And I think yeah. that's a posture we can take with just our lives and moving about the world. I keep thinking of um, uh, the story where the woman comes in to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume in Simon's house, and Simon is a Pharisee. And um, Jesus kind of ends that whole story. It's in Luke chapter 7. With the one who has been forgiven little, loves little, but the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. That so that resonates to me with um, the end, that end story that he relates to what would the master do? He loves much, obviously, um, not because he's been forgiven much, but, <laughs> right? Because he doesn't need to be, but um, I'm invited to resonate more with the woman anointing his feet because that is the reality is that I'm just as much needing love as the Pharisee is. Let me ask this, how easy is it or hard is it for you to identify with Jesus welcoming the little children? Um, because I've been reading Chuck's book about narcissism. I referenced that last week. Um, that inside every narcissist is a scared little child who is just trying so desperately to hide that scared little child. And I wonder if in some of these contexts about forgiveness, we're scared children underneath who are just trying to protect ourselves. I think what I like about the children analogy is that they, they don't know any better yet. They just ask the hard questions is they, they come and they just stay what they think. And I think we're always too afraid of, what that will expose about our own lives um, or about our own biases or um, prejudices. I just, I feel like what I love about little kids is their honesty and their willingness to not realize <laughs> some of the things that they say. Because <laughs> I think yeah. there's times where um, we, we just don't want to be real and honest. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think kids just like haven't learned that they need to keep score yet because they like mm-hmm. don't they don't understand that like what the feudal game we're all playing is that we're keeping score for, right? Yes. And they like every every time we ignore something that like every time not ignore but every time we yeah i think ignore every time we like forgive a mistake every time we lead with a posture of love in the midst of adversity or in the midst of something that we could be critical about that does nothing but create love and grace and trust and every time like in which essentially means when we find ways to criticize unnecessarily when we find things to get upset about when we find ways to just whine and moan about stuff that is eliminating those things that's getting rid of love and grace and acceptance and understanding which is a tough reality for someone who really really enjoys like being hypercritical of everything <laughs> but that's <laughs> me being the opposite of jesus a hard reality This is a hard, a hard but so well-written invitation to be a lot more gracious and compassionate. But I think, again, like it, it goes back to where does, where's the fountain of that? Where's that come? Where's the source of that in our lives? You know. Um, so I think you know. You asked a, a, a little while ago, what comes first? I, I'm not going to be able to have compassion. And to love you, unless I realize how much I've been loved by Jesus, you know. So maybe it starts there. Well, that is a good place as any to wrap it up for this week. We will be back next week discussing, talking about, figuring out chapter six of the importance of being foolish, uh, which is called the work of the kingdom. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. Thank you for reading along with us. Uh, We appreciate it. We're thankful for you. We miss you, and we'll see you soon.